Welcome, Valley family. This is the finale. This is the conclusion uh, to our series that we're calling Seven, uh, based on the seven books, uh, the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Actually, you may be surprised. There are actually 10 churches uh, along this postal route here in the Roman Empire, uh, and Jesus doesn't even talk to three of them for some reason, but uh, he, he only speaks to seven uh, out of the 10, and, and we're concluding this series. I don't know about you. I've, I've gotten an awful lot out of this study. Uh, a lot of challenges for sure, uh, no doubt about that. And we want to welcome everyone uh, that's also uh, viewing online as well. Uh, last week we had almost 200 devices viewing our services, 200 uh, last last week alone. So really amazing, the tool of technology that allows people to be connected even when they're on vacation during the summer and traveling all over the place. Well, I, I do invite you, go ahead and open up your Valley Christian Church app and you'll be able to follow along with the notes and the outline there and look back on some of the things we're going to talk about a little bit, uh, kind of, uh, it's interesting, this seventh church, the church of Laodicea, which we're calling the lukewarm church, that'll make a lot of sense. Uh, in just a minute, uh, is kind of somewhat of a review in a way of a lot of the same themes that we've looked at over the last six weeks with the previous six churches. But let me give you a little bit of background you may not be aware of. In fact, I would bet you aren't aware of about the city of Laodicea. I don't know how much of us know anything about it. But uh, it's interesting that they were, uh, they were known for four different things. And the reason why I want to share these right now is because Jesus takes a very different tone with this church in Laodicea. In fact, I would almost say he's almost sarcastic with them. He, he references something that was very common, four things, very common to them, and then he applies them uh, in a real corrective type of a way to them. So real quickly, four things that Laodicea was known for. First of all, they were incredibly wealthy. Incredibly wealthy city. It was a city that was kind of a, a crossroads, if you will, in the Roman Empire, and they were very, very affluent uh, city. Uh, the second thing is they were also known as being a very healthy community. They had uh, specifically people would come from all over the Roman Empire if they had any problems with their eyesight especially because they had a salve that they made in Laodicea that they would apply to eyes people who had cataracts people whose vision was beginning to get blurry and supposedly it would actually help and bring some clarity back to them so they were known for uh, their medicine and for their health they're very healthy people they were also known uh, for specifically uh, the manufacturing of wool and the wealthiest of the wealthy in Laodicea would wear all black clothing that was wool that had been dyed black. And so that was like a status symbol that the most wealthy in the city would walk around, you know, in black. And so they would kind of uh, show everyone who the haves were and the have-nots based on what they were wearing. The fourth thing that Laodicea was known for was contaminated water. Their water system was contaminated, so they had to get water from two other sources. One of those was piped in by a Roman aqueduct. You can actually look up Laodicea Aqueduct. Uh, Google that sometime. You'll be surprised. Parts of it are still in existence today. And they had to pipe in the hot water from a neighboring city in a Roman aqueduct. The cold water was funneled down from the mountaintops. The only problem is, watch this, by the time both the hot and the cold got to Laodicea, they were neither. They weren't hot anymore, and it wasn't really cold anymore. But they couldn't use their current, their own uh, cisterns and their own wells. Jesus picks up on these four things 
And he speaks specifically, and as I said, almost sarcastically, to the Christians gathered there in Laodicea. So let's jump right in right now. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, just where we left off, verse 13 last week, verse 14. Here we go. Revelation 3, 14. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen. Jesus is referring to himself as like, I'm the amen, I'm the end, I'm the one, the, the finalizer, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Jesus makes it really, really clear in his introductory comment. He's like, I am large and in charge. I'm the one who is in charge here. I am the ruler of God's creation. That's who is speaking right here. And then he goes right in. He just does right to the point. Next verse in verse 15. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. Ding, 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 ding. He goes, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Now think about this for just a minute. Here the Christians are gathered, or worship. They heard these letters are being uh, distributed with the other churches, the other six churches. They're waiting, waiting for their letter. They open up their letter from Jesus that's been dictated to John. The Holy Spirit, is little, Jesus rather, has spoken to him. They open it up, and Jesus goes, I know your deeds, you're neither cold nor hot. And they're like, He's literally touching on something culturally in this, in this city they experience all the time. They, they have the hot water piped in, the cold water trickles down from the mountain. Neither of them are hot or cold by the time they get to Laodicea. And it was a frustration with the people. And right off the bat, he goes, I am so frustrated with you. You think you're frustrated, Laodiceans, about your water. He said, I'm frustrated with your lives. As frustrated as you are that you can't get good hot water, you can't get real cold water, he goes, that's how I feel about you. I wish you were either one or the other. Look at the next verse here now. It's very picturesque. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. This is where I like to say sometimes, you know, Reading the Bible mess you up as a Christian. Because we like to think of Jesus as, oh, oh, you're so wonderful. You're so great. And Jesus is like, you make me want to spit. Now, I just, I just want to be real. I try to keep it real, right? My family's from Georgia. Spitting is kind of customary down there. In fact, I started chewing tobacco when I was about seven years old. And uh, the first time I ever tried chewing tobacco... Uh, and, and I tried it several times after that, and, and just it didn't take. But I thought I was a big man on campus when my brother opened up a pouch of red man chewing tobacco and said, here, put a little bit between your cheek and gum and hold it there for a while. And I remember just as I was getting ready to spit for the first time, I was like, no. He's like, no, hold it. I'm like, no. He's like, no, hold it. And mouth fills up with saliva. He said, I'll tell you when. I'm like, all right, all right. And then he goes, now, and he hits me on the back. And I swallowed it all. <laughs> swallowed all that mouthful of spit. And that's enough to discourage you. And I can tell some of you have also chewed tobacco based on your response there. I, I stopped shortly thereafter, but uh, my, 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 that same brother still does skull to this day uh, in his 50s. I'm glad it didn't stick with me at all. 
I understand a little bit about spitting here, but here's the thing. That's not what Jesus says here. When you go back into the New Testament, the original language in the New Testament, which is Greek, the writers of the translator into English tried to dress this up to make it look better by saying spit. The actual word here in Greek, let's put it up there so you can check it at home, is emeo. It means to vomit. He says, you make me want to puke. To literally throw up. That's what Jesus is saying to the church of Laodicea. To the Christians that are gathered there. He goes, you make me want to puke. Now, I have a special video that we're going to show right now. For those of you who can't get in touch with your gag reflex. 60 babies throwing up in 30 seconds. Let's go ahead and show that right now. No, I was going to do it. I actually had the video and all that. And I was like, I can't do this to these folks. I cannot do it. I did it to all the staff. Pastor Stephen passed out, you know. Uh, but uh, it was literally, it's, you can Google that too. On YouTube, 60 babies throwing up in 30 seconds. It's really awful. But uh, I think we can understand what's being said here. Jesus is actually saying, you make me, let's go back. Can we go back to the slide before this? Jesus is literally saying, so because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to puke you out of my mouth. It's amazing. Something has, something about this church has really gotten him ticked off. I mean, this, this language is, is kind of unprecedented from our Savior and from our Lord. Literally what he's saying in essence is, you know what? An actively committed atheist has more integrity than you, a half-hearted Christian. Let me say that again. An actively committed atheist has more integrity than a half-hearted Christian because at least they take their lack of faith seriously. And Jesus is saying, you're half-hearted, and I refuse. I, you make me want to puke. You make me sick. And remember, they were known for being so healthy there in Laodicea as a city. He says, you make me sick, quite literally. See, too many Christians say, Jesus is my creator. Jesus is my savior. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my coming king. But there is no difference whatsoever in the way we live our lives and those who deny Jesus is the Christ. All kinds of studies that have been done about this in American culture. That there is no difference in any behavior between those that say they're Christians and those that say they're not. No difference. There should be. Jesus said to the church of Laodicea, you're making me want to... When I look at you, I'm... Jesus is very troubled by this. Jesus says that they're, they're lukewarm, and that makes him sick. It makes him sick because it pollutes his church, and it creates misconceptions with those outside the church about what Jesus really values and who he really is. He says, to the church of Laodicea, you are misrepresenting who I am. And so there's, how, how, the question is, how, how do we know if we're lukewarm? Well, I think we've already looked at that a, a couple of weeks ago. Remember the church of Sardis? We talked about six symptoms of a dead or a dying church. Every one of those symptoms can be applied to an individual Christian as well to determine if we're lukewarm or not. The Spirit has left. How much are we walking in the Spirit? We have no passion for prayer. 
We have no ear for truth. We tolerate sin in our own lives. We, we, we're divisive in faction. We like fighting and arguing with people. And we stop taking risks for God. All those six symptoms of a dead or dying church are also six symptoms of a lukewarm Christian and a lukewarm faith. And, and Jesus says, I'm about to let it go because of being lukewarm. So three questions as we work our way through what Jesus says here. First of all, what is so sickening about them? What is, what is really so sickening about them? I think that's the first question. And so look at what he says in the next verse. Very interesting. Again, remember the culture of Laodicea. You say I'm rich and have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched and you're pitiful and you're poor and you're blind and you're naked. Do you know what the worst kind of deception is? Self-deception. It's impossible to convince someone who is deceived that they're deceived. You know why? Because they're deceived. It's almost an impossible task. And what Jesus is saying to the Christians in Laodicea is like, you think you know me. You think you're of my family. He goes, you're not. You think you're rich and you're wealthy, but you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind. Remember the ISAV that they were known for? He said, you're helping people to see physically, but spiritually you're completely blind. Completely blind because you're lukewarm. And he says, and you're naked as well. Think about it for just a minute. Where he says, you say I'm rich and have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Think about your own life, my life. When is it that you feel closest to God? It's not when everything's going great, is it? <laughs> feel closest to God when we're in the middle of the struggle when we're in the middle of the challenge, that when things just seem like they're shaking and the boat is rocking, the earth is shaking below us like we talked about before, that's when we just press into God and like, God, I need you. God, I'm desperate for you. But when everything's going nice and smooth, it's real easy to forget about him. Can I be honest with you? You know the hardest time for me to pray? On? <laughs> Do you know the hardest time in my life for pray? <laughs> when I'm on vacation especially when we go to Disney World. I just find I cannot pray at Disney World. I don't know why. It's just so difficult to pray at Disney. I don't know why. It was just like whenever, because I'm just enjoying it. It's like, woohoo! wake up in the morning. Let's hit the park. And it's like, you know, get through it. And we're going Space Mountain. And we're going all this stuff. And then it's like 6 o'clock at night. I'm like, I haven't even spent any time with Jesus. Because everything's great. And that was the problem with Laodicea. He, he said, you, you say you're rich and you're wealthy, and they were. And you say, oh, we don't need anything. God, I got this. I got this hold. I got this down. And he says, but you're really wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. They were self-deceived. When things are falling apart, it seems like we lean into Jesus the most, doesn't it? It just shouldn't be that way. 
See, Jesus is warning, blessings can blind us. God's blessings can actually blind us. I heard a great uh, preacher one time say it this way, and it just has stuck with me all these years. This is probably going back 15, 20 years ago. He said, can you stand to be blessed? Can you stand to be blessed? Because when we're blessed, when everything's going great, we just tend to forget about him. In fact, this can be uh, proven over and over again too often when everything's going great. The first thing to go is our dependency on God. And so just, just for clarification's sake, there's nothing wrong with being blessed, but Jesus warns blessings can blind us. Let me put it this way. It's not a sin to be rich unless it makes you poor in your faith. It's not a sin to be rich unless it makes you poor in your faith. You know, I, I know some folks that are really, really well off. In fact, my brother who, <laughs> my brother who dips skull, he's, he's very, very well off. Probably one of the wealthiest people I know personally. Uh, he's retiring in September at the age of 53 and he never has to work another day in his life. And they're going to be moving full-time to his 7,000-square-foot beach house, selling the house in Atlanta. He's executive with Coca-Cola for, for well over 20 years. And, uh, but you know what? What I, I just so respect about my brother is this. We were down at his beach house uh, for vacation. We're sitting there on his front porch, and we're just talking. And I said, what are you going to do? What are you going to do, Scott, with all this time? He said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to teach Sunday school every week at the church up the road. I'm going to get involved with small groups. I'm going to invest my life in some young people. That's what I'm going to do with my time. So, so you know, incredibly wealthy, but very, very centered on what's really important in life. See, it's not a sin to be rich unless it makes you poor in your faith. And so, so there's a warning, and, and it's not the only place in Scripture. James talks about it as well, a warning to those who are rich. Because it's real easy that, hey, if the bank account's full, no matter what comes, I'm going to be able to figure a way out, get my way through it. So time and time again, Scripture teaches that really, and this is the thing we've seen, haven't we, in this series seven, that persecution is actually a blessing. When we face difficulties and trials and tests, it's actually a blessing. The only true churches that, that received unfiltered praise from Jesus were the two that were persecuted churches of the seven. Do you know where, for instance, do you know where the Holy Spirit is moving the most in the world today? It's not in the United States. In fact, all, uh, every uh, you know, scholar, every theologian, people that, that measure these, it's not in the United States where the Holy Spirit is moving. Where, where is the Holy Spirit moving? It's not even in the Western Hemisphere. It's actually in the East, in the underground church of China. And in China, they're literally seeing signs and wonders and miracles, thousands of salvations every day. Look at this, uh, actually from the Huffington Post. Uh, China on track to become the world's largest Christian country by 2025, experts say. And by the way, Christianity is illegal there. And there'll be more Christians in China in 2025 than in any other nation on the planet. Why? Because it's a persecuted church. 
In fact, most of you aren't aware of it, but we kind of have a presence in China. In fact, uh, we've met a young man who kind of has a Valley Christian Church house church in China, listens online, watches online, the online campus, came to know Jesus Christ because one of his co-workers is a member of our church and shared his faith with him on a business trip. China on track to become the world's largest Christian country by 2025. In fact, when I was doing a little research, initially this, the, the, when this, this uh, was released by experts, they said 2030. But the church is growing so fast, the Christian population, that they actually took five years off of it and said, no, it's going to happen by 2025. Amazing. So it's not the church in the United States that's growing so much. In fact, I think Jesus would probably say to the church in the United States, you think you're wealthy and you're rich and you have no need of anything. But you're wretched and you're pitiful and you're poor and you're blind and you're naked. That's what was really ticking Jesus off so much. That was what was so sickening to him. They were so deceived. They were doing the religious stuff. And Jesus wasn't a part of what they were doing. So here's the next question. What's Jesus' prescription for them? He, you know, the Bible says one of the things, uh, names of God is he's the great physician. What was, what was Jesus' prescription? Look at what he says. He's actually like a doctor prescribing medicine. In verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. That's always purity, remember? We've talked about fire. So that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. Think about it for a minute. He's, he's messing with their, with their cultural things they're familiar with. The rich and the wealthy were wearing black, and he's like, you know what? White is the new black. He's like, you're all dressed up in the wrong fashion, folks. It's not about wearing black. It's about wearing white. It's about walking in purity. And he says, that's what I'm saying. White clothes to wear. This is what you need to get so you can become rich and, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's like, you're so used, Laodicea, people coming to you to get help with their eyes. He goes, you know what? You need help with your eyes. And I need help because all your faces just disappeared, so I'll just put that right back on there. Oh, there you go. Yeah. He said, what you're even known for, you're a fraud. You're known for helping people see, but you are blind spiritually. Jesus is saying, white is the new black. You know, just a couple weeks ago in week number five, when we talked about uh, the church of Sardis, you might remember I put a big white sheet over me because he talked about the same idea of these white clothes that, that, that white clothes is, it's purity and I quoted this verse 2 Corinthians 5.21 I just quoted it but I want to show it to you now God made him, that's Jesus God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that's what happened on the cross Jesus Christ was perfect and God placed all the sin of humanity upon him. He actually became sin. That we might become the righteousness of God. That's what, it's called the great exchange. It's what happened on the cross. 
that God poured out his wrath that you and I deserve for our sins. Jesus took it all. He made him who had no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so let's put that picture up from a couple weeks ago, if you will. See, there it is. Yeah, I know it's pretty ugly. Uh, But anyway, but that's how Jesus sees you. That's how God sees me in that moment that when we receive Jesus' sacrifice through his perfect life, his sinless life, and his sacrificial death, that he laid his life down for you and for me, and he rose from the dead, proof positive that your sin was paid for and my sin was paid for. When we receive him as our Savior and as our Lord, in that moment, it's like God takes that black cloth of my sin and he removes that from me and that he put on Jesus on the cross and he takes that white robe of purity and righteousness of Jesus and he places that around my shoulders and he places it around your shoulders as well. That's what God sees when he looks upon someone who's received Jesus Christ as their savior. The the theological word for this is is actually justification. Justification, It's 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 a legal standing that God says, you're justified, you're forgiven. Good way to remember what justification means, just kind of break it up into the syllables, just as if I'd never sinned. That's what justification means just as if I'd never sinned. And so when God sees Greg, he doesn't see all this gunk and all this stuff, just as if I'd never sinned. Perfect, pure, and holy. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 puts it this way, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, And this is not of yourselves. None of us will ever be able to earn God's forgiveness. It is a gift of God, not by works. You see that? If you and I lived a million years, we would never be able to deserve or earn God's forgiveness. It's God's grace through the cross. God's grace, that's why he sent his son. Because none of us can ever earn and be good enough and sinless It's by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves. It's nothing you do. It's nothing I do. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. No one can be proud of it. Jump back to what Jesus says here. Revelation 3.18, he says, you need salve to put on your eyes so that you you can see. I know this sounds harsh, doesn't it? But Jesus is the one who purchased the church with his life. He's got a right to correct it. Sounds harsh, but remember, this is all because Jesus loves the Christians in Laodicea. He loves them so much. Then look in actually the next verse, verse 19, Revelation 3. He says, those whom I love I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. Jesus says, don't mistake what I'm saying and why I'm saying it. I love you. That's why I'm correcting you. I love you enough. I accept you. I receive you. God accepts us and receives us. He's not waiting for us to get our act together, but he loves us enough not to leave us the way we are. 
He sent his Holy Spirit when we receive Christ as our Savior to come live within us, to change us from the inside out. So what's underneath the hood starts looking like that white sheet on the outside. This is the process of sanctification, transformation the Bible talks about. Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. You know one of the ways that you know that you're walking with Jesus? He corrects you. He corrects you. In fact, we all know this, don't we, as parents? What does it mean if you don't correct your child? You don't care about your child. You don't care about your child. A a parent who just, oh, go ahead. Oh, Johnny, go ahead, chase that ball out into the street. Everything will be okay. You don't need to look both ways. They don't care about their child. As hard as this is for us to wrap our heads around, this is a love letter from Jesus to the church of Laodicea. See, the opposite of love is not hate. That's a common misconception. Because love is not a feeling. Love is not an emotion. Love is action. It's a verb. So what's the opposite of love? It's not hate. It's indifference. I don't care. Son, I don't, I don't care what you do. I don't care. Whatever you do, it's fine. I don't care. That's a parent who doesn't love. Whatever you do, that's fine with me. No matter what, that's fine. That's not love. Love cares. Love cares so much that it translates into action. For God so loved the world, he had to do something about the mess of sin that we're in. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. He had to do something. Because if he did nothing, he didn't love. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God, Jesus says, so be earnest and repent. We've talked about what that word means, repentance. It means to turn around, to go in the opposite direction, to leave that action that we're involved in, that thing, that activity, whatever behavior that we're involved in, to turn and go back. We could almost put it this way. Jesus, when he calls to the Christians at Laodicea, see, so he says, so be earnest and repent. He says, come on home. Come on home. Come back to me. And then look at the next verse. You've probably heard this verse before. If you've been in church for any length of time, but you probably didn't know it was in the middle of a rebuke to the church at Laodicea, the whole context. Jesus says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Think about this for just a minute. At the end of these letters to the seven churches, Jesus is on the outside looking in. How ironic is that? Jesus is speaking to the church of Laodicea that's meeting every single week, that's doing all kinds of things in the community, and he's saying, you've locked me out. Will you let me in? Will you let me in? He's not speaking to people that don't know him. He's speaking to Christians Behold, I stand at the door and knock because you've shut me out of your life. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. In the ancient world, sharing a meal with someone in their home was considered like the ultimate symbol of friendship and love. In fact, not too many years ago, 20, 30 years ago, it was like that in the United States. Now it's so different, you know, you're sitting at home on a Wednesday night, you hear the doorbell ring, all of a sudden it's like, hit the deck, turn off the lights, army crawl, mom, army crawl. is that? Nowadays, the doorbell rings at 8 o'clock at night on a Wednesday night. You're going to get shot through that door. But I remember like 30 years ago when I grew up as a kid, you know, right off here at Lake Walton Road, Wednesday night, we're like watching, you know, Yankees or something like that. Ding dong. Dad's like, someone's at the door. We all go running up to the door and we open the door and you know who it is? Company. We've got company. And we asked, you know, dad was like, hey, what are you doing? And man would say, well, I was in the neighborhood. What does that even mean, by the way? <laughs> Very creepy. Ever think about that? I was in the neighborhood? You mean you're in Lake Walton Road? That's a neighbor? You don't live here. But no, nowadays, he, 30 years ago, dad was like, come on in. Come on in. And we'd all sit at the table. And then, you know, I, I don't know. Can you relate to this? Uh, my mom would pull out that Entman's coffee cake or crumb cake that no one was allowed to touch. Do you remember that? She, she'd come home with the paper bag from the grocery store and she'd put this out and it goes, no one touch this. This is for company. This is for company. But all of a sudden she'd pop open and there it was. And then she would just, just make this spread. We'd just stop everything. And we're sitting there and she's starting to cut it and she goes, would you like some tea? Would you like some coffee? Would you like Sanka? I have Sanka. Let me get you some Sanka. We'd be sitting there talking. It was just like, stop everything. And then, this is before cell phones, remember? And the phone would ring in the kitchen. Ring, 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 ring. My dad would go like this. No one answer that. We've got company. It was like the ultimate thing. And like I said, nowadays, you, you don't show up at my house at 8 o'clock on a Wednesday night going to invite and ring the doorbell because we're going to turn off all the lights and pretend like we're not there. <laughs> and you do the same thing if I come to your house right after church, you know. So it wasn't that long ago, even in our own culture, that this was like the ultimate just dropping, but I was in the neighborhood. This is what Jesus is saying. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and our relationship will be so much deeper, so much greater, so much more powerful and personable and close than you could ever possibly imagine. Amazing the difference. Then he goes on in verse 21 and Jesus says, to the one who is victorious, again this whole idea we've seen through the seven churches, the one who overcomes, the one who endures to the end, the conqueror, the one who is victorious, the one who finishes. 
I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. How about that? I remember as a kid crawling up in Santa Claus's lap, you know. At Christmas time, you sit on Santa's lap, and he's kind of got like a throne. Tell him what you want for Christmas. Jesus says, you, you overcome, you endure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you sit on my throne with me. Powerful, the imagery here. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus says, that's, that's how close I want to be with you, Christians, in Laodicea. He goes on and he says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, it's interesting, many years ago, there was a famous painting that was made based on this passage here in Revelation chapter 3. It was by Holman Hunt called Light of the World. Let's go ahead and, and show that. It's a picture here of Jesus knocking. You see there he's got the, the lantern and, and it's overgrown on the door. And when this was first displayed in an art gallery, when, when the artist Holman Hunt finished it, one of the art critics came up to him and said, it's so beautiful, you can see the shadowing, the texture and all. But they said to him, Mr. Hunt, there's something wrong. Your, your painting is not finished yet. And he said, what do you mean? He goes, there's no doorknob on the door. Mr. Hunt said, no, the painting is finished. Because that door is the door to the human heart, and it only opens from the inside. See, Jesus is never going to kick the door down of your life. He's never going to force himself into your life and my life. He's never going to make us do something that we're unwilling to do. He just knocks. And he says, will you open your heart to me? Because I want to come in. I want to come in not just to the dining room. I want to come in to the living room. I want to come into the bedroom. I want to come into the garage. I want to come into every room of your heart. Everyone. Not just your, your Sunday morning room. Not just your Thursday night room. I want to come into every area of your life. But I'm not going to push myself in. And I'm not going to kick the door down. You got to open it from the inside. So here's the third question for us as we conclude this series called Seven. What is Jesus saying to me? Ask yourself that question. What is Jesus saying to me? He's knocking. Is God knocking at any of the doors of your life right now? Maybe it's your beliefs. Maybe it's your habits. Maybe it's your friendships. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your marriage or your dating life. Maybe it's your home or your family. 
Maybe it's your emotions. What are the rooms of your life that you say, Jesus, I refuse to let you go there? He's not going to kick the door down. He's just going to knock. Will you open the door? Will you let me in? See, here's the thing that concerns me most about the church of Laodicea and concerns me for every Christian, including myself, that we would ever become so comfortable and satisfied with just enough Jesus to get us to heaven. You can come into the foyer, but you can't come any further, Jesus. He's not our Lord if that's the case. He's really not our Lord. And Jesus wants it all. And you know the crazy thing is this? It's better when he has it all. It's so much better. How different would your life be for Jesus to enter into that one room that you keep locked? Jesus, you have access to everything, but not, uh uh-uh, not not the basement door. You can't go down there. there. There's some stuff down there that I have that's just for, you can't go there. How different would your life look if we gave him full access to every room in our life? I'm going to ask, would you bow your heads with me right now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we hear you knocking today. God, give us the courage to open the door to every area of our life to you. To invite Jesus in to be the Lord of all of our life, not just part of our life. And to respond to what we hear you speaking to us today. God, we don't want to be like those that were in Laodicea who thought they were rich, who thought they were healthy. But in actuality, they were, they were blind and they were naked and they were poor. Father, may we respond as your Holy Spirit speaks to us. And may we open the door totally and completely to swing wide that Jesus could step into every room in our heart. Thank you, Father. Right now, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe you're here right now and you've never opened the door for the first time to to even let Jesus through the doorway. You can do that right now. The Bible says that if we declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. So right now, if you've never opened the door of your heart to Jesus, I want to lead you in a simple prayer. It's not really the prayer that makes the difference. It's you opening your heart to him as you speak these words. Because just as we heard tonight, we'll never be good enough to earn God's forgiveness. It only comes through Jesus' perfect life and his sacrificial death and his resurrection from the dead that he paid the price that we could receive the gift of his grace and his forgiveness. So if you've never prayed and opened your heart to Jesus, just repeat this prayer after me right now. Heavenly Father, 
forgive me of my sins. I receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ. I turn from my sins and I trust in Jesus. I recognize Jesus is my Lord and Savior. He paid the price for me. And now guide me, direct me, lead me from this day forward the rest of my life as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Valley Christian Church located in Hopewell Junction, New York. Please visit us online at valleychristianchurch.net for more information. Thank you.